Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney. To those joining online, welcome to you as well. Um, just a couple of announcements. The final roster has gone out via email, but there is a copy of it on the kitchen bench if interested to double check. Uh, also, with uh, morning tea, that will be brought to you as well so we can avoid excessive mingling, um, but it should be great. It's great to see you and to uh, worship the Lord together and uh, praise Him that we can do all things as unto Him, whether we're clapping or even being silent. It's a great, great way that our God just, He is so gracious and merciful and He receives the praise and adoration of his people. So we'll be in Luke chapter 18, if you want to turn to verse 9. I spent last week um, at Camp Kedron speaking to kids, and it was really a blessing to share the gospel and have kids respond to it and be born again. So praise the Lord for that. Um, unless God revealed his righteousness to us, we'd just be in the dark. We wouldn't know what's right from wrong, um, and God gave the Jewish nation his laws, and, and ironically, Paul wrote in Romans 10 that they remained ignorant of his righteousness because they sought to establish their own righteousness by attempts to keep the law. And just knowing what's right, it doesn't mean that you always do what's right. Uh, we, at camp, there was this chance for a half-court shot, and you know, the right thing is to put the ball through the hoop. And just because you know that, it doesn't give you any power to do that, right? My shot uh, was quite bad. It, it didn't even make it there. Um, but that's, like, that's our best attempts to follow the law, to, to try to measure up to God's standard. We can't. It's impossible for us. But uh, God, he is righteous. And his righteousness is consistent with his character, his truth. It conforms to his will. And people imagine they can be righteous by trying to do the right things. But because we're not God, we will fail. Our intent to do right, it does us no credit because, yes, we should try to do what's right. And our best does not undo our wrongs. Australian law, it says that a person charged with a criminal offense is presumed innocent until proven guilty. But the scripture, it condemns us by telling us what we already know, that all have sinned. There is no good, no, not one, that none of us measure up. And according to his standard, we're all guilty and deserve punishment and death. It's very easy to try to justify ourselves, though, isn't it? Think about the classic story of a, a sister hitting her brother and uh, mom saying, hey, you're hitting your brother. You know you're not supposed to hit your brother, but he hit me first, right? Just trying to justify yourself by saying, I, it's okay to do what I did because of what they did, what, because of what he did. And whether or not he deserved it wasn't the point. It's still a sin to lash out, to... to uh, to have that outburst of wrath. We can try to compare ourselves to others. We can blame others, uh, like Eve and Adam blamed each other or the serpent. And our reasoning doesn't make us righteous, but it's God who makes us righteous by grace through faith. So praise the Lord, we can be born again. We can have a new start. We can have not just a second chance, but a new life as a new creation, born again through faith in him, and he's provided atonement for our sins. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your truth, for your righteousness, that through you we can be born again. 
through faith in Christ, we can be made new. That what's impossible for us is possible with you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who works supernatural miracles and that you are the one who saves us and who opens the eyes of the blind and raises the dead to new life. And we ask, Lord, that you would put in us a heart of humility that draws near to you, desiring to hear your voice. Lord, may I not be a distraction or a hindrance from people coming to you today to receive your word and to walk in your truth, to praise and magnify your holy name, for you are awesome and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text picks up where Jesus, he's teaching as he passes through Samaria and Galilee in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is speaking to a specific group of people, did you notice, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, which is to be innocent and holy before God. And let's not limit this just to the Pharisee or exclude Jesus' disciples from this number of people who can do that to have a self-righteousness that causes you to look down upon others or to see them as lesser. They because he was filled with self-righteousness and self-promotion, he despised others, looked down on them. And a high view of self, it leads to a low view of others, whereas a high view of God leads to a high view of others and denial of self and humility. You see this example of despising others with Sarai and Hagar. Remember, Sarai was barren, unable to conceive, and so she gave Hagar to Abram as a surrogate. And after Hagar conceived, it said her, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So she was with child, and so she began to look down upon her master, and she had an arrogance and a pride in her, dismissive. And uh, that's the sort of thing where you... You feel superior, and so you look down upon others. In the parable, two men went up to pray, and in Jewish society, they could not have been more different. One's a respected, educated, pious Pharisee. He kept the law of Moses. He's wearing the right clothes. He's doing the right things. He's there at the hour of prayer. The, others, uh, the other was a tax collector, a Jew who was hired by the Roman government to extract taxes from the Jewish people and was, were well known for their oppressive uh, and shady deals, how they would profit from the oppression of their people. Pretty much on the level of a dog, like an unclean person. They were just like, ugh, a tax collector, a rotten individual. You've never met a good one type idea. Uh, and the Pharisee stood, it says, and he prayed thus with himself. He wouldn't even associate with that tax collector over there. He points him out. Like he's going to stand kind of away from the tax collector when he prays. And it's a very self-centered prayer. He's trotting out basically how good of a person he is. He's so generous. He's like, I'm so glad I'm not like other people because I'm generous. 
I'm not stealing from people. I'm upright. I'm above reproach. I tithe not only on my first fruits, but on everything, all my possessions. It reminds me of the pious yet rebellious people that God spoke against in Isaiah 65. Because these people, they maintained an outward appearance of righteousness, but God knew of their idolatry. He knew of their disobedience and pride. This is in Isaiah 65, 5. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. So he's like, you know, have you ever been around a campfire and there's some smoke in your eyes and in your nose? You're like, ugh, you try to move. It was an irritant. This, the arrogance, the pride in these people, God's like, mm, get away from me. You don't want to be near the tax collector. Well, you're, trying, you're, you're praying with yourself. I'm not listening to you. I'm not going to hear what you're saying. And it may have been he went up to pray because he had an admiring audience, but truly he did pray with himself. Two men went up to pray at the same time, but they prayed very differently, didn't they? One's loath to be near a sinful tax collector, but the other was reluctant to even draw near to God because he realized he, had, he was a sinner. His sin was great. It's common practice today in the old city for Jews and pilgrims to approach the western wall, and the, the more devout folks, they go towards that northern side. Um, where it's like the closest spot you can get to where the temple once stood, and they pray next to the wall. And it's like the Pharisee, he goes to that northmost corner of the wall, whereas the tax collector is like really reluctant to even approach the wall. And he was so humbled, so penitent, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He's just hitting his chest again and again, just saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't pray to be like the Pharisee. The Pharisees looking at other people and saying, I'm glad I'm not like him, glad I'm not like her, but the, the tax collector, he's looking up to God. He can't even raise his eyes to God because God is holy and righteous, and he says, God, be merciful to me. He's not looking at other people. He's just focused on the Lord and his unworthiness to come before him. He can only see his dire need for mercy from God, otherwise he perishes. The only other time this word is used, where he says, be merciful to me, it appears as propitiation. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2, 16 and 17, I'll just read it to you. It says, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So it's like an action word of active mercy, to pay for. The sacrifice of Jesus, it paid the price required to provide atonement for sins, and it's a beautiful picture of God's mercy. And it was the man's humility and faith that allowed him to receive the mercy that God had offered to him. So it's like God has this mercy, he has this grace extended, and it's the humble heart that can receive it. Jesus concluded, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this was really surprising. This was a confronting conclusion because the people likely assumed the Pharisee would have been heard by God because he was a man of God. People have this concept that a minister or a pastor or someone, you know, that you would revere in ministry 
has a direct line to God. Their prayers are more likely to be heard and answered than just the person on the street or that tax collector. But Jesus says, that tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee prayed with himself. He wasn't heard. His prayers weren't answered. I mean, he wasn't asking for forgiveness, was he? He was just telling God what a great person he was. But uh, the tax collector, he went home justified. Because he went home pure and holy and righteous before God because his sin, which was so great, was freely admitted before God. So the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The words of Jesus have put a new spin on Proverbs 3, 33 and 34. It says, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise humbles himself before God, falls upon his mercy. Pride is wickedness that brings a curse, but God gives grace to the humble. The Pharisee who scorned others would be judged without grace. And you know, the law, God is merciful, but the law is not merciful. There's nothing in the law merciful at all. It doesn't let you off the hook for trying to do the right thing. If you break it, you break one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. The proud who don't see their need for repentance, guess what? They still need it. And the one who humbles himself before God as a sinner receives forgiveness and is accepted, goes home justified. And, and you know where that home is, right? It'll be in heaven someday to be justified, to be righteous before God by his grace. Awesome. Luke 18, verse 15, they also, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. I surely, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. People were bringing their babies to Jesus to, to touch them, a parallel passage in Matthew 9.13, it says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. So that gives us a little bit more insight into what was happening there. The laying on of hands among the Jews, we see it a few times in the Old Testament, like when you were dedicating a sacrifice to God. You'd put your hand upon the sacrifice to show like, there's like, this, this is for my sin. This is what I'm freely offering. So you put your hand on the sacrifice. It was to confer a blessing, like with Jacob and Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, how he laid his hands upon their heads. Um, the consecration of Levites for service. They had hands laid on them. Or the passing of leadership from Moses to Joshua. You see, there are many different times that hands were laid. And the Luke passage doesn't tell us why. I, I figure there was a lot of different motives for bringing your baby to Jesus to have him touch. Maybe there were some who were sick. Uh, maybe it was the equivalent of a first century selfie, you know, like you could have your baby with a famous person, and that's really special and cool. Like, he's, he's blessed, and maybe some of that blessing will kind of hang around my child. So there could have been some superstition mixed in. Who knows why they brought them to Jesus, but... Um, whether they desired healing or blessing, the disciples saw it as an intrusion and they rebuked the people. Jesus called them to himself, though. He says, do not forbid them. Let them come to me. His disciples behaved like the Pharisee 
in the parable who viewed extortioners and adulterers and tax collectors as, you know, undesirable. You know, like, you're, you don't really, you're not welcome here. And the disciples saw those kids as, that, who lacked social standing as less important. And they saw the Pharisees as more important, even though the Pharisees refused to come to Jesus in faith. That's the irony, isn't it? It's so sobering that Jesus' disciples would try to keep others from coming to Jesus. They would get in the way of children being touched by Jesus. And God forbid that we would be those. Let's be those who bring kids to Jesus, who see them as just as important as an adult. Jesus says, don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. You think about a child, that they're willing to be bundled into the car by mom or to be led by the hand or be carried by a stranger. I mean, I, I haven't had anyone take me up in their arms and lift me off the ground recently, but, you know, that's just trust, right? That's trusting that you're not going to drop me, that I'm safe with you, and you've never seen this person before. And, you know, some kids are like, whoa, they, they me. Like, i rather have mom or dad. But they, they know who their mom is. They know who their dad is. They can recognize very early who their parents are, and they prefer their company or to be held by them than others because they know when they're in trouble, that's the person to run to. That's the one who will help me and comfort me when I'm hurt, right? So there's an acknowledgement of who dad is, who mom is, and God is looking for people who acknowledge him as father, who say, when I'm hurt, I run to him. When I need help, he's the one that I trust. I don't want to be carried by anybody else. I want to be carried by him. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus came saying he was the Son of God, and it took faith and humility to believe him and to follow him. And faith is simple trust. A child can trust. Like, when I'm hungry, my mom is going to give me a good snack. When dad throws me up in the air, he's going to catch me. And so it's fun and exciting. This is actually fun because I know that he's strong. He's not going to drop me. He's not going to hurt me. Following and trusting Jesus isn't just for grown-ups. Children can receive the kingdom of God. They can follow Jesus too. And I heartily commend all of you who work to bring your little children to Jesus, whether as a parent, those who labor in the scriptures to lead children to the Lord. And I believe that those who encourage one child lead one little child to come to Jesus, they fulfill a ministry just as important as someone speaking to thousands of adults at once. There's this misguided or maybe even pervasive view that your talents or gifts really aren't used to the full unless you're speaking to an adult audience. But I don't believe that's true. I don't believe it bears any scriptural support whatsoever. I remember as a youth pastor, people would say, so when are you going to be a real pastor? We need to quit playing games all the time. It's like, well, I really feel like God's called me to be a pastor. That's what I'm doing right now. And it may not look the same for every group of people, but hey, we, we might be like the disciples. We give more respect to one uh, ministry or, or role than another. Jesus didn't. He viewed those children as to be brought to him. Bring them to me. Don't keep them from me. You may think that there's greater blessing or reward teaching adults from a pulpit rather than kneeling with a little one and giving them a glass of water, but 
they are both equally rewarded by our Father in heaven who is gracious and good, who loves the little ones. God may not be calling you to a teaching ministry, but as his minister, you can be fruitful in leading little ones to Jesus and not hindering them, providing a godly example, helping them to look to him, teaching them as you walk through life day by day in everything that he is good and he is our Father who forgives us and gives us righteousness by grace. Luke 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. A certain ruler comes to Jesus. In Matthew 19, he's described as a young man. So he's a young man, he's a rich man, he comes to Christ and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And if you've read the law, there's not a lot about eternity in the law. We don't read a lot about eternal life or how you have assurance of salvation. Those, those are brought out much later in scriptures, um, not so much in the first five books of the Bible. Of course, it's there, but it's not explicit. It's not like... Um, the other commands, like do not do this and do this. Um, honor your father and mother, and so you may live long in the land that God's calling you. It doesn't say you'll go to heaven, right? So he lacks, this man has invested his life in following the law of Moses and honoring the word of God, but he still has no assurance of salvation. He feels there is an emptiness in him. He has acquired a lot of goods. He has authority, but he has no surety of heaven, of entering the kingdom of God. And he comes to Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus points out that, um, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Jesus isn't denying that he's good, but he's saying, in calling me good, because there is none that are good. No, not one. If I am good, then I am God. And we see that in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, if you want to turn there. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. We don't know if he called Jesus good to flatter him or if he viewed Jesus as actually being good. I think if he did view Jesus as actually being good, we'll see he would have followed him when he had the opportunity. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So Jesus could not be good unless he's God, using this kind of good. I mean, we say good, like, how are you feeling? Good. By saying that, I'm not claiming to be God. Or that dinner was really good. That was terrific. But Jesus is pointing out that word, to be wholesome and perfect and great in every way, that's, that's really descriptive of God. And he launches into, you know the commandments. He rattles off five of them which relate to relationships with others, like do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, that's to lie, and to honor your father and mother. 
according to his understanding, he'd already ticked these off as done or not done. Like he hadn't murdered anyone, he hadn't stolen anything, he hadn't cursed his father and mother, and he supported them perhaps in their old age. So on a surface level, he could claim that he'd followed these, and we could too. However, if you look at the heart of the matter, we have broken all of them, right? Because we know that committing adultery can be done with your eyes and in your mind. That uh, hatred is like murder in our hearts if you've despised something. So Matthew 19, 20, it reveals that despite his efforts and his wealth, he felt empty. He says, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And I love that his, he had this tender conscience. He realized that he was lacking something. He didn't know what it was. And he came to Christ for guidance. And there's a hint of frustration through religious activity and pouring himself into things and, and not being able to have that assurance he desired. He had no hope of eternal life. And I think this confusion and disillusionment is shared by a lot of people today because they seek hope for a good and secure life on earth and also for eternity. It proves elusive as they follow this rainbow of philosophy or dogma or act activism. They're looking for that pot of gold at the end, this assurance of fulfillment and satisfaction that they never receive. They keep pursuing what they can't find. They're looking for something they don't even know what they're looking for. And that's where this young man found himself. But he came to the right person. I'll give him that. Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 22 of Luke 18. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Mark, it, puts, it sheds some light on the tone of Jesus. In Mark 10, 21, where it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the cross and follow me. Jesus loved the man despite his ignorance, despite his emptiness. You know that lacking one thing makes a big difference? A car that lacks an engine is not going to get you to your destination. A boat that lacks a rudder, you're not going to be able to steer it. A mouth that lacks a tongue is not going to be able to articulate speech. A body without a heart or a brain is not going to be functional, right? Lacking one thing matters. Trying to justify ourselves because of attempts to keep the law is futile because if we lack at one point, if we offend at one point, we are guilty of breaking the whole law. It says that in James 2, 8 through 10. The man claimed to have followed the law from his youth up, but that's not when God begins to hold people accountable. He doesn't start when you're 13. He's looking at the heart all the way through. And we're like, well, hold on. That's impossible. Of course it is. <laughs> we're going to get into that. It is impossible to be righteous before God. James tells us that showing partiality to one person, that means to show preference, whether you realize it or not, is sin. This rich man who kept the whole law, he stumbled at one point, 
and he was guilty of all. And so the man said, what do I lack? Jesus says, you lack one thing. Now, wouldn't that be great if you came to God and said, what one thing do I need to do? And God's like, okay, here it is. Tells you that one thing. Would you do it? Well, we can't be so sure because look at what the rich man did. God told him, Jesus told him, one thing, one thing you lack. Take your goods, sell them, to the, sell them give the proceeds to the poor, and follow me. You'll, have, you'll exchange your earthly wealth for riches in heaven, and then you follow me. He showed how he, he didn't mention the first or second commandment, but we see that the man had violated those because money had become his idol. It was his God. It was, he was serving his money, and he was unwilling to give it up. And the man was very sad to hear about this because he was very rich. He lamented all that he stood to lose rather than seeing the kingdom of God as gain. Where his treasure was, that's where his heart was. And his heart was a depressed, sad heart, sorrowful and grieving because he, he stopped short of the kingdom of God because of his unwillingness and really his inability to give up the thing that Jesus asked him to. It shows to me that eternal life to him, it was kind of like a trinket to be tucked away in a box somewhere. Just to say, oh, I've got that covered. I've got eternity. That's handled. On to the next thing. The irony is that he called Jesus a good teacher, but he didn't do what he said, and he didn't care to follow him. Now, the command that Jesus gave, it's not directed to all people. It was directed to this man because of his idol of materialism, right? He, his life was tied up with things of this earth. And, uh, but we shouldn't discount that either because that may be the call upon any one of us where materialism is a snare for us to be avoided. It's like we can have great wealth and our heart is not set on them and we can have very little and be covetous of what we don't have. So the problem is not in having things, but in what has your heart, what has your affections, where your priorities lie. Are you going to hold on to something in disobedience to Christ, or are you going to give it because he has asked you to? Not because you have to under law, but because you love him and you believe he is a good, not just a good teacher, but a savior, the son of God. So the young man walked away sorrowful. He still had all his wealth, but it shows that wealth, it cannot contribute to our comfort or our joy. He still had all his money, but he was sorrowful because he saw there was no way for him. And Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He showed how hard it was to enter the kingdom of God. We view poverty as a hindrance to a better life, right? We see that wealth can be a hindrance to eternal life. Riches can effectively blind us to our need uh, spiritually. And when we have present security on earth, we don't look to heaven. We don't look beyond this life where we will stand naked before God who will judge us according to our deeds and our words done in the flesh. So Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And uh, we'll see from their response that it's an impossibility. Camel's a very large animal. A needle is a very small thing. How could this work? Like, who cares which is easier when it's impossible? Uh, 
Luke 18, 26, all who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Isn't that awesome? That was exactly Jesus' point. It is impossible for man to justify himself according to the law. It is impossible for a person to be declared righteous by God, by the good he does or the sin he avoids. It's impossible for us to save ourselves from hell, to gain eternal life, and to earn. Because he said, How can, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he, really, he's asking the wrong question. Because it's not about what we can do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. That he has come. That he has shed his blood and provided atonement for our sin. That when we trust in him and repent, when we humble ourselves before him, we can receive that free gift of salvation, the forgiveness and acceptance that God promises. Jesus explained the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And we all face impossible things. It's impossible to change someone's heart. It's impossible to change their mind. These things are possible with God. He's able to take a sorrowful heart and turn it into a joyful heart, a giving heart, a generous heart. Through God's salvation is possible. Atonement is possible. It's possible for you to enter the kingdom of God and to be adopted as a child by God through grace in Him. Jesus went about Israel doing the miraculous every day. Since Jesus is good and can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves... Receiving salvation, it's a gift, not based upon what righteous works we've done, but the grace freely given us by Christ. Continuing on in Luke 18, 28. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter's pretty quick to point out that they had done what the rich man had failed to do, right? <laughs> He's like, see, we've done it. He, he went away sorrowful. He went back to his money, but we left all to follow you. And Jesus, you know, assured such sacrifices and service would be rewarded in this life and ultimately in the life to come. Disciples of Jesus, we won't be saved by merit of denying self, or generous giving, but by the grace of God. Jesus is the door through whom we must enter if we will enter the kingdom of God by faith in him. And Jesus calls some to step aside from a profitable business. He might uh, call you to give goods to the poor. Like others, like Abraham, he called to leave his family and go to a land where he would show him. He didn't even know where he was going, but he trusted God, the God that revealed himself to him. And God will reveal himself to you. It doesn't say that Abraham sought God and so that God revealed himself. God showed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to him. It's like by grace. But then as he drew near to God, God drew near to him. And they were able to have fellowship one with another. Only the righteous will have a place in heaven. That's where righteousness dwells. And it's those who have been made righteous by the gospel who have come by faith in Christ. And this faith, it will be demonstrated through obedience. 
Because if this man really believed that Jesus was the good teacher, that he was the answer to eternal life, that he was the door through whom he must enter by faith, he would have left all and followed him. But he wasn't convinced. And hopefully, I I mean, I don't know where he stands, but hopefully you will decide to follow Jesus as the good and uh, awesome Savior that he is. As we close, let's turn to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. I love that what's impossible for us is possible with God. And we see a little bit of this with with kids and adults, right? Like it's impossible for a a one-year-old to, some one-year-olds to walk. And it's impossible for some to to turn on like the light switch by themselves or to dress themselves. But that's very possible for a parent. I mean, they may be kicking and screaming, but you can still usually, you know, we will get through this. We will prevail. You will have dinner tonight. You will go to bed at the appropriate time, right? What's impossible for us is possible with God. Starting in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What hope does a dead person have to live? None. But we were dead in trespasses and sins. We have now been made alive together with Christ. And notice in verse 6 that we have been seated. It's not we will be seated. We positionally, spiritually are seated with Christ. We are established in the kingdom of God right now by the gift of God and the grace that he's extended to us. And grace means you cannot earn it. You cannot uh, do enough to uh, acquire it. It's all on the merit and the power of God as a free gift given to us that we receive even as that little infant is sitting there and you need to open your mouth for the airplane to bring the food in, right? Just open up. Open up wide and I will fill it. God will fill us with his spirit when we trust in him. He will fill us to overflowing. We can't earn his presence, but he delights to fill us and to empower us for his service. Salvation is a gift of God offered to all by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Not, and, and the good works we do, it's because he is doing them through us. He is doing them. He is, it's like the, Jesus gave the example of I am the vine, you're the branches. It's not of yourself that you have any vitality. It's because your connection to me, now you are able to produce the fruit that I designed you to produce because of his spirit within us. So we come to Jesus as little children, eyes open to recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior, with a heart like that tax collector who was humbled before God, because in the greatness of God, he saw his sin and his, his lack and his need, and he went home justified. What's impossible with men 
is possible with God. And there's no lack for those who trust in Christ, who's become for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, our all in all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for your grace that you've extended to us. Lord, cause us to humble our hearts before you. Thank you that your word says, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, to be humble before you. And uh, when we're cast down, thank you, Lord, that you lift us up. How gracious you are to pursue us and to seek us and to call out to us, to say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And that out of, our, out of us will flow rivers of living water. And the one who delights in you will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Thank you, Lord, that in you we have all that pertains to life and godliness, and that what's impossible for us is possible for you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, draw us near to yourself that you would speak to each heart individually, that as we come draw near to you with humble hearts, we would be justified. We will be sanctified and someday glorified in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your kindness you've shown us all. And we ask that we would live to praise you and to glorify your name now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.